Let me invite you once again to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. So we continue in a series we began a few weeks ago, or a sub-series, a study of the Beatitudes. It's part of our overall study of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' manifesto for kingdom, the kingdom of God. We began that last fall doing an overview. Beginning of this year, we looked at each of the petitions of the Lord's Prayer, which is part of it. And then a couple of weeks ago, began looking at these Beatitudes, the blessings that God uh, says belongs to those who are part of his kingdom. It's important as we look at this to recognize that the Beatitudes are not presented as things that we are to do and to muster in our own strength. It is a declaration of a reality of God's grace and God's work in those who belong to him. And yet together they bring a beautiful picture as each of these components related to one another describe what we taste, what we become, and to some extent what we are. Our focus this morning will be on the second beatitude, which is on verse 4, but for the sake of context and to understand um, the the unity that these have, I'll begin reading verses 1 and 2 and then skip down to verse 4. And so now let's come to God's Word. Verse 1. Seeing the crowds... Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, in verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The word of the Lord. Let's go to our God in prayer. Our Father, we do come now as we commit this time to you, uh, asking that our time would be as worship, that we give to you our minds, as well as our hearts, trusting that you who have invited us here and have promised that your word never comes back empty or impotent would be at work within us, shaping our minds to think what you think, to have our minds renewed according to your ways, uh, and that our hearts would be given to it as well. Lord, shape us that all of us might grow in Christ-likeness in all of us together, reaching full maturity in him, that this would be a time that you would be at work. Lord, may you be glorified not only by your word, but by our reception of it. Receive it as our worship. We pray through Christ. Amen. Standing beside the freshly opened grave of a teenager who has tragically had his life snuffed out by a senseless drive-by shooting. Trying to comprehend the devastation of a fire that has destroyed a home, and along with a home, a lifetime of work and all of the collected keepsakes. Getting first glimpses of a beautiful nature area or a treasured historic area that is now defaced by vandalism. Hearing the doctor saying, your cancer has returned. I'm not sure how you would feel in any of those circumstances. Perhaps it depends somewhat on whether you are the one who is experiencing it firsthand or whether you are one who is knows the ones who are experiencing it. But whether or not we would feel numbness 
or some rush of emotion. What I am quite sure of is that what none of us would say that we feel in the face of those kinds of circumstances is happy and blessed. And yet in what seems to be perhaps the most perplexing and yet profound paradoxes found in all of the scriptures. It's exactly what Jesus is declaring that those who are his in those circumstances are. Because Jesus is declaring, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It doesn't really even seem to help when we recognize that the word here that Jesus uses, mercurioi, that is often translated happy, doesn't really mean happy at all. It means blessed. Happiness is sometimes part of being blessed, but happiness is a very fleeting thing. It's circumstantial. When circumstances work to our advantage, to something that brings us joy, we respond in happiness. We can't make ourselves be happy. It's a fleeting condition that sometimes is being part of blessed. But the word that Jesus is using here when he says blessed are those who mourn, or blessed as we see throughout this is a status, it is a state of being that is bestowed upon the recipients by the grace of God. And God is saying, through Jesus' words here, that blessed are those who mourn, for they, they shall be comforted. But even with that understanding, it, it still seems somewhat absurd. It's, it's a ludicrous statement. The world considers it to be a ridiculous statement. I mean, we know that suffering is inevitable, that it's going to come to every one of us in multiple forms at different times in our lives. And Jesus seems to be saying, so embrace it. But our instinct and the way of our culture is not so much to embrace it, but to avoid it and to escape it and to forget about it. I mean, isn't, isn't that the way that we, we deal with things? Fashion designer Coco Chanel, offering her, her perspective on life, just said, look, you only live once, so you might as well make it amusing. And aside from the seeming lack of wisdom to listening to anybody named Coco uh, for your life's view, She seems to reflect what is almost unchallenged perspective. The word amusing, though, means without thought, without thinking, and that's what we tend to do. We try to stuff things, try to pretend like we're not dealing with them. And otherwise, we can kind of forget the fears and the anxiety it might capture our hearts. And as Americans, we're pretty good at this. Looking at the statistics from the U.S. Bureau of Labor, I learned this week that Americans spend between 6 and 10% of our income on amusement. And between five and a half hours and five hours and 45 minutes a week in pursuit of amusement. Now, I'm not suggesting that there's anything wrong necessarily with amusement, but it is rather stunning. The, the, the 6 to 10%, depending on the income, the higher the income, the more the pursuit of, of, of amusement, of being able to live your life without thinking. But what was more particularly stunning was the five and a half to 
five hours and 45 minutes, and you break down the day. Most people need eight hours of sleep, so that cuts you down to 16 from the 24 hours that were given. Most people work eight hours, so that cuts you down to eight hours. And of those eight hours that are, rem that are rem uh, remaining, that the average American is spending at least five and a half hours pursuing, pursuing not thinking, numbing themselves by not being aware of their circumstances, pouring themselves into something that is going to bring pleasure and not have to deal with the realities of the world or of their own circumstances. That seems like a lot to me. And again, it's not that there's anything inherently wrong with pursuing amusement. It is part of our life in the proper doses. And I don't know what the proper dose is, but in the proper doses, it's restorative. It's refreshing. It's renewing. It enables us to actually perform at better levels because we recheck out. That's why we need rest, why we need time apart. But even though that's true, I think that culturists... Neil Postman was on to something in his book, Amusing Ourselves to Death. Listen to what Postman says. When a population becomes distracted by trivia, when cultural life is redefined as a perpetual round of entertainments, when serious public conversations become a form of baby talk, in short, when people become an audience and their public business a vaudeville act, then a nation finds itself at risk. Culture death is a clear possibility. And he's touching on the way that we live, the way that we respond to the difficulties in our lives and the hardships that we see all around us in our culture. And I don't know if you're familiar with Neil Postman or not or this particular book, but in it he profoundly analyzes not just culture but contrasts two philosophies of literature from previous generations one of which we are fairly well familiar with. Most of us were forced to read it. Some perhaps did it out of joy. Uh, George Orwell's 1984, back in our high school days. And he contrasts that with the philosophy of Aldous Huxley in his book, Brave New World. And it's a fascinating contrast. And if you'll bear with me, I want to read kind of his synopsis that's pertinent to us in our lives into this text that Jesus has given us this morning. But here's what Postman writes. We were keeping our eye on 1984, the book, not the year. But we had forgotten that alongside Orwell's dark vision, there was another, slightly older, slightly less well-known, equally chilling, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. Contrary to common belief, even among the educated, Huxley and Orwell did not prophesy the same thing. Orwell warns that we will be overcome by an externally imposed oppression. But in Huxley's vision, no big brother is required to deprive people of their autonomy, maturity, and history. As he saw it, people will come to love their oppression, to adore the technologies that undo their capacities to think. What Orwell feared were those who would ban books. What Huxley feared was that there would be no need to ban books, for there would be no one who wanted to read one. Orwell feared that those would deprive us of information. Huxley feared those who would give us so much that we would be reduced to passivity and egoism. Orwell feared that the truth would be concealed from us. 
Huxley feared the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. Orwell feared that we would become captive to culture. Huxley feared we would become a trivial culture, preoccupied with some equivalent of the feelies, the orgy-porgy, and a centrifugal bumble puppy. I don't know what a bumble puppy is. We can, somebody else can enlighten us later. As Huxley remarked in Brave New World Revisited, the civil libertarians and rationalists who are ever on the alert to oppose tyranny fail to take into account man's almost infinite appetite for distractions. In 1984, Orwell added, added, people are controlled by inflicting pain. In Brave New World, they are controlled by inflicting pleasure. In short, Orwell feared that what we fear will ruin us. Huxley feared that what we desire will ruin us. It's a profound consideration in an age in which we have so many things before us. And our tendency is to do exactly what Coco Chanel said, is we only have one life, so let's be amusing. Let's live it with thinking as little as we have to, because then we don't have to deal with the difficulties that are all around us or even in our own lives. I think it's for that reason and probably building off of this work by Neil Postman that John Piper said that America is the first culture in jeopardy of amusing itself to death. And in a previous generation, A.W. Tozer says that I believe entertainment and amusements are the work of the enemy to keep dying men from knowing that they're dying and to keep enemies of God from remembering that they're enemies. And this is the culture that we have to look at. And you have to decide whether Postman is on to something, whether this is characteristic of the culture which shapes the way we think and our tendencies in dealing with our difficulties is to just simply try to escape them or you might assume that he is mistaken tend to think this is the way that our culture functions. And as troubling as that is, it seems to me that it's even more troubling that dealing with reality and the reality of difficulties and giving ourselves to mourn is largely absent in the church as well. If you think about the largest church in the United States, it's given itself over to a philosophy and operates faithfully to it, that life's hard enough already and most people have enough difficulties, we're not going to bother people by talking about sin. We are committed to giving them only positivity. And thousands and thousands, tens of thousands will go into that place and listen to a smiling, bad joke-telling preacher who will give them cotton candy and no real hope. But they're the largest church in the country. And because of the largest church in the country, apparently what they're giving sells. And other churches are giving themselves to that. They become the measure. And we have exchanged worship for entertainment. And consequently, we've become impotent. The Apostle Paul, when he was writing to the Corinthians, he was talking about the differences in culture. He said that the Jews love power and the Greeks love wisdom. And whenever I think about that, I can't help but saying, if I was to say that today, Jews love power, Greeks love wisdom, Americans love entertainment. Christian or not, we love to be a people who can escape from the difficulties, the realities of this world and pour ourselves into amusement. And to the extent that we do that, we're operating exactly opposite with what Jesus is saying in this very perplexing text. 
It's understandable that we want to numb ourselves to the reality that is all around us or in our own lives, just to escape its hardships for a moment. And yet Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It's odd. It's perplexing, and it's a direct confrontation to our natural tendencies and the flow of our culture. What does Jesus mean? If we dissect what he says, we need to look at this in a couple of different stages. First, I think he's addressing the reality of suffering that is common to all of us, and we need to recognize in this that I don't think that's what Jesus necessarily has in mind. Because there's nothing inherently blessed about suffering. Everybody does it. It's just part of living in this broken, fallen world. And there is nothing meritorious about suffering or even enduring suffering. Some do it well. Some do it poorly. Most of us try to avoid it at all costs. Now, suffering may have the benefit of preparing us. It's been said that it is for those for whom sadness is deep that God is most real. And I remember reading of a church in England that was just out of curiosity. This was a very prominent church in Great Britain. And they were curious, and so they did an informal survey of the people within their church asking what were the circumstances through which the people in the church had come to faith in Christ. And they were surprised to find that 80%, a little more than 80% of the people had made their profession of faith in Christ, had given their lives over, received God's grace in the person of Jesus Christ, either in the midst of a time of crisis or shortly after they had come through a crisis. There's something about suffering that prepares us to receive God's grace. But it's not universal. Not everybody receives God's grace. Not everybody trusts in Jesus Christ. And so therefore, the, just the act of suffering itself is not itself blessed. It certainly makes nobody happy. And we may understand that the Bible addresses this in this way because it's very clear and the words that the Bible teaches says that there's different ways that we respond to suffering. The Bible makes a difference between godly suffering, uh, godly sorrow, and of worldly sorrow. And godly sorrow is what we recognize the realities that we're facing that are too great for us to deal with, and it turns us to God, and in real transparency, in real brutal, blunt, ugly honesty, we cry out to God in lamentation. Whereas worldly sorrow simply looks at the circumstances and grieves the consequences and may worry in God's direction, but never actually engages God with what our difficulties are. And so each of us is faced with a choice whenever it is that we are facing some sort of difficulty, something that breaks our heart. We can either just wallow in it or we can turn to God. And I believe that the very nature of what Jesus is teaching, he's saying blessed are the ones whose hearts are broken but are turning to God. I think he has in mind more than just our own personal sufferings. He's talking about those whose hearts are broken by the evil that is in the world, evil that's in our society. And there is much to lament in the world that is around us, even if some of it is masked in ways that are amusing. I don't know if you saw it or not, but on Friday, I think it was, I, I read in the Washington Post of, uh, of an incident where police were called to an apartment complex. Some of the residents of this apartment complex were concerned as they had seen a little girl 
turns out to be a three-year-old little girl that was unattended. She'd been playing out in the back in the fenced-in playground that the apartment complex had, and she was wandering the halls of the complex as well. So the police came, and they found the little girl, dirty from having been played outside, not particularly upset, but when they approached her and asked her if she was okay, she kind of grimaced and just said, I need a beer. Now, for the minority of you that laughed, that was my response too. We must be the jaded ones. I could just imagine this situation. It's, it's almost like a sitcom, a three-year-old, I need a beer. I mean, life's tough. I mean, the pressures on three-year-olds are unspeakable, I guess, and, and so I guess it's understandable. Well, for the majority of you who are not as jaded as I am, and I do feel better in this service than the first service, I think Steve Tewksbury was the only one that laughed with me, but anyway, that's... Uh, <laughs> I suppose it's because you recognize that this little girl is a reflection of many of the difficulties that we have in our culture. This little girl, it's tragic that she was left unattended, that she was neglected. And this little girl is representative of all of the children that are neglected in our culture, and that is heartbreaking. And then we think that the only children are not the only ones that are being neglected in our culture. Several of people from our church uh, regularly are going and serving to bring encouragement to uh, the residents at the nursing home down the street. And if you know anything about nursing homes, they, a fair percentage of those who are in there, they've not only outlived most of their friends, but their families, if there is any, they don't come. And so there's a fair percentage of them that are neglected. They're living there alone and by themselves. A very lonely existence, and it, it's heartbreaking, and it's tragic. This little girl was neglected because as the police investigated, they found out that her mother was strung out on something. And so this little girl is a reflection of two other issues within our culture that are lamentable. One is the addiction and people that are abusing different substances, which frankly is not a whole lot different. The reasons often are not a whole lot different than why we pour ourselves into amusement. They just want to numb themselves from the realities for a time, and they've chosen illegal things where we tend to choose legal things. But it should be, let's just medicate the way that we feel so I don't have to deal with the pain that I see in my life and that I see in the world that is around me. Because she was a single mother, we see the decay and the breakdown of the family as God has designed it. I mean, this is just in one incident that we're reflecting a number of different areas that would break our heart. We're not even talking about the issues that we still have to deal with in racial injustice, not just here, but throughout the world. It's the sex trafficking that continues to take place. Uh, the whole idea of the, of the indiscriminate pollution and the political corruption. I mean, it's depressing. No wonder people, no wonder this girl needed a beer. And that we feel that we need to numb ourselves. But Jesus says something different. He says, blessed are those who mourn. And through this particular beatitude, we realize that there is an expectation that God's people are going to be aware of what's going on in the world. In other words, there's an implicit engagement of the social issues and when it breaks our heart it leads us to mourn which leads us to lament the prayer of con complaint to God it, but we're engaging God and with that also comes intercession it breaks our heart Lord it shouldn't be this way Lord do something use me use us but change the world your kingdom come 
on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus, blessed are those who mourn. Because mourning of social sin that leads to lamentation and intercession also directs our hope to a promised reality that is yet to come. A day in which there will be no neglect and no suffering and no tears. And some of the comfort comes in that promise. But Jesus also has in mind something else. The social aspect is certainly important, but there's a personal dimension as well, and Jesus, I believe, has in mind here, blessed are those who mourn over their own sin. See, the awareness of sin is not just something that we need in order to get into the kingdom. We're aware of our sin, we confess, we repent, and then believe in the offer that God has given us in the person of Christ. But all of our life is to be lived out with that kind of awareness. That even though when we have trusted in Christ, we are declared to be saints, we are declared our status before God and anywhere else is as perfect as Jesus is, the reality is that sin continues to have an impact in our lives. It's alive and it's at work in every one of our lives. And we need to be aware of that. And aware of that, conscious of how sin is at work in me and how sin is at work in you, we're blessed, in a sense, when we mourn. That's not the way we're created. That's not the way it's supposed to be because that mourning leads to repentance, and that repentance reminds us again of the promises of the gospel that are secured in the person of Jesus Christ. And we find comfort in the reminder that our sins are not only forgiven and therefore we are able to live our lives free from the penalty of sin, but we're reminded by the power of God who is at work within us that we are able to be set free from the power of sin that continues to be at work in us as well. Only when we are aware and when it breaks our heart do we turn to God and ask him to be at work within us. And so we need to see very real that there is a social dimension and that there is a personal dimension of the lamentations, of the, of the mourning that Jesus is referring to here. And for the person who is concerned about the social evils, it turns our attention to a day that is promised to come when things will be right. For those that are mourning over their personal sins, we're reminded of the grace that is ours in Jesus Christ. And both of those things bring a level of comfort. But Jesus actually says something more powerful and more profound when he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. While the circumstances are certainly true that we will experience comfort from the promise and all that God has done, there's a word that we don't recognize in this in terms of they shall be comforted here. The word that is used for comfort is actually from the same root as one of the names for the Holy Spirit, paraclete, meaning coming alongside comforter, server, helper. And what Jesus is saying here in this passage, blessed are those who mourn, whose hearts are broken, similar to what Christ's are broken as he wept over Jerusalem and wept over Lazarus, not because he was going to miss Lazarus, he was going to have dinner with him 10 minutes later, but because it's not the way life is supposed to be. Death isn't the way that God created things. We did that. And he weeps over Jerusalem because there are people just like us. They're called, and they're called by God's name, and some of them eh, tried to follow God some. Most of the time, 
It's one point or another. The people would rather have God baptize their own desires than conform themselves to God. And Jesus looks at the consequence of that over that city, just as he would on our church or the, our culture, and he weeps. Jesus is blessed because he mourns. Our hearts become, show them to be Christ-like in that situation. But the comfort comes because it's not just a matter of, oh, it'll all work out. But the comfort comes in the personal presence of God himself in the person of the Holy Spirit. And he is at work within us to point us to the promises, to the true reality, and to actually bring that comfort. We have a choice, all of us who are here, that I think that Jesus is bringing out because we all have issues. Some of your issues I know very well that is bringing deep despair into your lives and recurring, and it is painful. Others, you're just annoyed. Whether it's a deep pain or just an annoyance, every time that we are dealing with that, every time our heart is breaking, every time that we are in mourning, we turn to God or we numb ourselves. Numbing ourselves, we don't feel the pain. But when the numbness wears off, the pain is still there. Jesus' invitation to those who mourn, in other words, are willing to experience what is true for all of us, and to deal with God on the basis of his love for us. We will receive comfort both in the presence of God in the Holy Spirit and the work of God through the Holy Spirit to make all things the way they ought to be. It is our choice and Jesus is inviting us to experience real comfort that transcends the circumstance that can be experienced even while the struggle continues to enable us to have a joy that makes no sense but is very real to those who are trusting in Christ. May he grant that to us. May we take all things to the Lord. May we be allowed, allow our hearts to be broken that we might find joy beyond what we would imagine. Let's pray. Our Father, we do come and give thanks to you for this word. And I pray now for those who are in the midst of struggles that you would grant them the freedom to lament and to share their broken heart, no matter how unpoetic it may come out. You've told us that this transparency brings you delight. I pray that for others of us, that you would grant us the ability to see what is broken in our lives and in the world, and that our hearts might be broken, that we might be more like Christ, but with hearts that are broken find the wholeness in your grace. For all of us, Lord, we pray that you would shape us, that we would be a people who are more real than anyone else. For we need not fear the future or even what, face, what is challenging us. For we know that you are greater. I pray, Lord, that you would free us to live our lives with joy that comes from you. I pray all 
for your glory in accordance with your promise to us in Jesus. Amen.